This is a diet of Brussels. Well, it's been a month or so since uh, Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen unveiled the Windsor framework. And, well, I think things have moved on in that time, um, seemingly for the better in terms of a more constructive and positive relationship between the UK and the EU. So what I want to look at this week is why that's happened. What does that tell us about what is coming next? Because as much as there is uh, cause to be uh, more optimistic, it's clear that this is not the end of the process. And to use the eternal phrase, Brexit is not yet done. When we talked last month, shortly after the framework had been unveiled, the concern was that whilst a technical agreement had been possible, and indeed had been possible for a long time, there was still the problem of domestic acceptability. So the, the capacity uh, which should come uh, not least through the data sharing agreement, the real-time agreement between the UK and the EU, which happened at the beginning of this year, which made possible a lot more kind of uh, underpinning of commitments uh, for uh, border controls. The real change had been that Rishi Sunak seemed to be willing to try and engage in conventional diplomacy, i.e. negotiations, uh, with the EU on these kind of things. But what was also clear was that he still had the same party that had spent uh, the last four years uh, or so uh, under Boris Johnson uh, complaining and arguing and pushing back on anything that looked like, air quotes, surrender. So why has that not come to pass? Because if we look at what's happened in this month, we've had uh, one parliamentary vote on one part of the Windsor Framework package, uh, the Stormont break. But that produced just over 20 or so uh, Tory MPs who voted against the party plus the DUP, and we'll talk about the DUP in a minute. But actually what was you know more telling was that you had a lot of abstentions. So MPs not necessarily supporting the deal actively, but being willing to accept it and let it pass. And that by abstention, they register both their disapproval, but also that they are uh, acquiescent in this development. Now this really matters because that vote was really the only opportunity that Tory MPs were likely to have to register their unhappiness with the framework. And that matters because the framework is an evolution of the protocol and it is in effect an affirmation of the protocol. What we're doing in this framework is adding in some new mechanisms about representation and voice for local uh, 
actors. We're having some easements on uh, border controls and the application of EU law. But very much within the protocol system, and as much as there is this declaration which says we will refer to it as the Windsor framework, legally it's still the protocol. So for MPs who have devoted so much time since 2020 uh, and the entry into force of the protocol, saying uh, that this was an imposition, this was unacceptable, the role of the court was uh, uh, unacceptable in the context of you know the UK leaving the EU and yet still it's able to pass judgments that bind British citizens, all of that seems to have, if not fallen away, fallen back into a more marginal kind of pursuit. And even those people who did vote against uh, the break uh, back in Parliament did so without the degree of rancour and outright hostility to the government that has certainly been seen at many points in recent years. So, what's the explanation for this? A number of things. I think partly it's about a recognition that even with this deal, the UK is not about to walk back into uh, the single market or the customs unions, let alone back into the the EU itself. So in that sense, the war is won when it comes to the EU, that we are in a hard Brexit and we will stay in a hard Brexit for the foreseeable future. Partly, it's also the the way in which various members of the ERG and related groups have been pulled into government. So Johnson, Truss, Sunak, all of them have brought people into ministerial roles uh, of varying degrees, which has limited their scope and their willingness to rebel. So most obviously people like Steve Baker, Chris Heaton-Harris being pulled into the Northern Ireland office, which also coincidentally lets them be exposed much more to the full range of voices that there are around Northern Irish politics. The DUP is not all that there is in Stormont. But perhaps the most important part of this is the way in which Brexit is not the mobilising issue that it used to be. That where once uh, it was the most issue, it was the defining issue of British politics, that moment seems to have gone. So if you like, this is the logical consequence of Johnson's argument in 2019 that get Brexit done was not just an attractive thing because people wanted Brexit to be uh, achieved in fulfilment of the will of the people, but also people just wanted it done because they didn't want to talk about it anymore. So the scope to mobilise public outrage, ire, the media to get behind all of this looks quite limited. Moreover, I think there's also a factor, which is that Rishi Sunak has decided that here is something which is a relatively easy win. As I said, the the technical capacity to do pretty much all of this has been around for quite some time. And it's really the political will. 
So here we have a, a nice package that goes down well, that makes Sunak look like a man who can get things done in comparison to some of his predecessors. Uh, that improves relations with the EU, that reassures international partners that the UK is back uh, in track and doing all the things that it should be doing as a large uh, international economy. Um, all of those things look like wins. And at a time when the party sits so far behind in the polls, Sunak has a material interest in trying to at least soften the blow and ideally turn the ship around. So that's partly about an interesting party. It's also clearly a, a self-interest that, you know, he knows he's got a general election not too far away, a bit more than a year, and he needs to get every convenient win that he can. And on the European front, Northern Ireland was obviously the problem. Now, I think there are limits to this. Uh, Sunak uh, obviously wanted this package to also result in the DUP returning to power sharing in the Northern Ireland executive. And that's not yet happened. And, and to be honest, at this point, it doesn't look like it will. As much as the DUP voted against the Stormont break in uh, the Commons, they have taken their time about settling on a firm position, that their legal opinion or their legal advice and the party mechanisms to make a decision definitively on the framework has been slow, to say the least. And I think that reflects an understanding, uh, in part, that they have painted themselves into a bit of a corner. The protocol, in effect, was unacceptable in even amended form to the DUP, uh, and yet it was also unrealistic that that uh, protocol would be actually removed or amended to such a fundamental extent that it was no longer a problem. So having taken this hard position, they now find themselves sort of stuck until such time as uh, some other factor intervenes, you know, maybe an election, maybe something else. And it's also been clear that the DUP left Stormont partly because of the Bright Goal, but also because of not really being happy about forming a government in which Sinn Féin would take the First Minister post. That hasn't changed, and uh, polling in Northern Ireland for elections suggests that that's a situation that's likely to remain for the time being. So the DUP have kind of... Uh, held fire, despite the incentives built in across the framework for them to return, to enable the use of the Stormont break, to enable them to actually uh, make Northern Irish voices count in this system. However, as much as there was this conscious cross-linkage between power sharing and unblocking the protocol on the part of the British government, and by extension the EU, you haven't seen Rishi Sunak put the same kind of effort into forcing the power-sharing issue as you did on uh, navigating parliamentary waters when it came to the Windsor framework itself. And I'd argue that the reason for that is that power-sharing and restoring the executive is a long, 
difficult process that is unlikely to generate much political benefit for Rishi Sunak outside of Northern Ireland. And as a quick reminder, the uh, Conservative Party doesn't actually have any candidates standing in Northern Ireland, so it can't even benefit directly from that. So whilst there might be a kind of a statesman, uh, leader of the nation kind of argument in the longer term, right now it's not the quick win that Rishi Sunak needs and wants. So just generally, I think the focus of this government is one that is particularly short-termist. It's looking to the horizon of next year's general election in order to try and do a whole bunch of things that make it look as though it is a competent party of government to try and erode the lead of Labour, ideally to overtake it again on competence on economic issues, which is a key part of uh, everything. Now, all of that suggests to me that the Windsor framework is not so much the dawn of a new age as it is the resolution of a problem and just a return to classic British European policy, which is essentially muddling through. So throughout the post-war period, the UK has never really been entirely clear what it thinks about European integration. It kind of recognises there's some value in it, but it never really kind of wanted to take a driving seat in shaping what that might be. So notions of balance of power, notions of economic modernisation, of the geostrategic factors, none of those things really resolved all that clearly. You could argue that membership back in 1973 was a function of running out of alternatives that looked credible, rather than any positive kind of project. So having been unhappy on the outside in the 50s and 60s, it then became, well, quiet during the 1970s and 1980s, saw some potential to shape the single market very effectively, it has to be said, before then starting to be unhappy on the inside that the consequences and the logics of integration that if you do stuff together, you get benefits, and so you should do more stuff together because you'll get more benefits, rubbing up against the feeling of dislocation, of uh, a lack of voice, a lack of agency, until we end up with the system and the events that took place from 20, well, 2013 onwards when David Cameron made his fateful promise at the Bloomberg speech. So... The purpose, the strategy of relations with the EU and with its member states remains as elusive as it ever has been. And so I think what we'll see with Rishi Sunak is not so much a bold new programme of this is what our relations are like, but rather something quite fuzzy around constructive engagement, lots of talking doing things where we can do that relatively easily, relatively frictionlessly, uh, and uh, that will be about it. What you're unlikely to see, very unlikely to see, is Rishi Sunak going down a route of institutionalisation and of binding commitments on either side. 
Maybe the only other example or exception that I can think of to this is the unblocking of the question of British participation in Horizon, the EU's research programme. Here again, we've got a nice convenient little package. Uh, the EU basically had been quite overt about how this was tied to resolution of the protocol. Now we've, in effect, dealt with uh, the protocol, the most pressing problems, not all of them. Then it makes it easier for the EU to reopen those discussions for the UK to come back in. Now that's good for British uh, industry, for higher education, for people like me, uh, so I can do uh, more work with my European counterparts. So in terms of hitting some targeted audiences who have complained about how unfair all of this is, and also, incidentally, more generally as a way of saying, well, look, we sold the protocol and now we're reaping the benefits of getting back into this scheme where British universities have uh, historically done very well indeed, is an obvious kind of case of where you can have a discrete thing that generates uh, clear benefits for Rishi Sunak. So I don't think it, it means that British academics are suddenly going to love the Conservatives, but they will be relieved that there is something uh, in terms of a positive development. And also the public again, once again, gets to see that this is a man who is on top of his brief, who is getting the work done, who's moving things forward. But this is not a complete solution. To be fairly obvious about it, it's not as if the Windsor framework actually solves all the problems that the UK has. We still have the retained EU law bill, which trundles on, and in fact doesn't even trundle, it's moving fairly quickly uh, once again, which is liable to create a very big problem for compliance with the trade and cooperation agreements, requirements on level playing field, which is likely to cause a whole degree of business uncertainty around what legislation is in effect at any given point, and which once again looks like a thoughtless British move that is liable to raise EU backs just at a point where you're supposed to be rebuilding trust. Similarly, uh, the illegal immigration bill that was introduced uh, a couple of weeks ago raises questions about the UK's engagement with participation in respect of the European Convention on Human Rights. Now that convention, with its associated court, is a bugbear of Tory backbenchers, and indeed many frontbenchers, but it's also tied to the EU relationship in that the substantive sections of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, particularly those around trade, rest on British participation in the Convention itself. So if that question of immigration, which isn't a Europeanized issue for the UK, you know, at most it's some bilateral arrangements with France and the other uh, literal states, um, that could become a European issue by virtue of the formulation of the uh, bill that's currently uh, in Parliament. Now, I think this really highlights the extent to which Brexit has exposed the deep connections that the UK has with the EU. 
quite apart from membership, there's a whole load of entanglements around legislation, around agreements, around standards, things that don't seem particularly EU-y and yet are. And I think that growing realisation uh, will only get stronger as we have more and more of these kind of cases. That the uh, freedom to do what we want, do things like join the uh, Comprehensive Partnership on Trans-Pacific uh, Trade, it's not what it's called, but you know the thing I mean, which has just been announced uh, in the last day, um, you know, that that's arguably incompatible with close relations with the EU, but in practice is not particularly difficult to navigate. However, what we have now is a situation of relative calm. That as much as we've noted these problems around the retained EU law bill, around the illegal immigration bill, those are not yet active problems. They're areas of concern, which both sides, certainly at the technical level, are well aware of and keep a, a watching brief on. But we're not in the deeply antagonistic Johnson period that we had. And importantly, there seems to be more respect for international law, for treaty obligations that the UK has signed up to. All of which leads us to then think about a final question in all of this, which is what happens after that general election? Well, I think we've got two options, obviously. The more likely option is that we change government and we change to a Labour government. In which case, we probably have more of the same. Labour have already closed off uh, rejoining the single market or the customs union. And so what it's effectively talking about are tinkerings at the edge of the withdrawal agreement and of the trade and cooperation agreement as it develops over time. The, the concern, I think, for Labour has been and will be for some time yet that any move to do something significantly more with the EU will be thrown back in their faces by Tory opposition leaders who will say this is a slippery slope back to rejoining. And whether or not it's true, the charge will be relatively hard to avoid, I think. That the ambivalence of how Labour leaders and leadership team have talked about the EU suggests, you know, that this might be a bit uncomfortable. So, Already they've done a very good job in terms of not really talking about the EU at all in the last couple of years under Keir Starmer, but instead have focused on cost of living, on the economy, on strikes, on health, all of the things that are much more likely to get people voting for them. And certainly in terms of economic performance, just like for the Conservatives, there's a lot more that can be done domestically without getting into your trading relationships with the EU that would produce bigger effects and probably more quickly. The second option in a general election, obviously, is that the Conservatives uh, hold on to power. In that context, as like, unlikely as it currently might seem, I think we might see uh, a bit more movement than we have from Rishi Sunak to 
do more institutionalized work. But I think still we have to recall that whilst Rishi Sunak is not the person who is uh, likely to repeat the Johnsonian, I won't even mention the word Europe or do anything that might possibly be construed as having any kind of constructive relationship with European counterparts. He is still somebody who is instinctively a Eurosceptic, if we can use that language still. So he doesn't have an interest or an agenda in closer cooperation for its own good. It will need to be something that's very much more instrumental, that delivers clear benefits, ideally on a relatively short uh, timeline, but who knows uh, how that goes. I think much will depend on how big a majority uh, the Conservatives might have, how uh, various leadership contestants might navigate the space after the election. But assuming that Sunak is able to return to office, you'd have to argue that he's going to be in a strong position given where we are right now. So to pull this all together, the Windsor Framework solves the most pressing problem in EU-UK relations, but it does, does not form by itself the basis of a new European policy for the British government. Unless and until we can have a more substantial discussion and debate within this country about what the UK's role in the world might be, about what kind of society it wants to build, we're unlikely to find major activity developing as we go along. Now, I've been wrong before. I was uh, wrong about various things over the course of the life of this podcast since 2015. But uh, on this, I think we have some pretty good evidence to suggest that this is likely to be uh, the start of another period of bumbling along. Now, uh, in the context of some of the events of recent years, bumbling along might not be the worst problem that we've ever faced. This is, however, somewhat unsatisfactory at uh, some level. And I'm going to guess that at some point that bumbling along ends up with us drifting into or walking into some new set of problems. And when we do, we'll talk about that. Until then, have a great Easter, and I will talk to you on the other side.